0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 30th.
1: I just wanna say, man, that I got my shortcomings and my flaws. I ain't better than nobody else. But uh man, the shootings that's going on, man, I don't care what hood you from, man, where you at, man. I love you and God love you, man. Put them guns down, man. That ain't what it is. You know, go up this, man, and y'all hold y'all here, man. You got parents out here sending plates, man, trying to bury their kids, man. Think about it, man. Love y'all.
0: When I heard this recording of George Floyd last year, it was the first time that I had ever heard his voice. And I mean, not his voice in the video that captured his death 11 months ago, but just him talking in like a regular way. We have heard George Floyd's name so many times, chanted at protests and more recently at the trial of Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis, where a jury decided last week that George Floyd was in fact murdered. But we so rarely get a chance to hear his voice. We're still trying to understand who he was as a person, what he cared about, what he dreamt about, and what stopped him from achieving those dreams. Last fall, we and a team of reporters at the Post worked on an exhaustive telling of George Floyd's life about this one man and his family and the forces of systemic racism that shaped their experiences over the course of more than a century. We heard from a lot of listeners about that episode. So this week, in the aftermath of the Chauvin verdict, we are airing the story again to remind people about the real three-dimensional person whose life and death were at the center of this trial. And we also went back to some of the people that you'll hear in this episode, people who knew George, to find out about what they think about the verdict and how they've been processing their grief almost a year after his death. But that doesn't come until later at the end of today's episode, because first we want to tell you about George Floyd's life.
2: He truly was gentle, and he'd joke a lot. Flo would crack so many jokes in class.
1: He was just a big dude, but he had a great big heart. He would literally uh, give you the shirt off his back, you know. I saw him the tennis shoes off his feet.
2: No matter what kind
3: of shoes he got on, he gonna dunk. <laughs> he gonna be barefooted, he gonna dunk on you.
1: He led me, and now I'm who I am today because of him.
0: When you start to piece together all these memories, you get a fuller picture of who this man was, but you also get a fuller understanding of why his story has mattered to so many people.
4: One of the reasons George Floyd has become a rallying cry across the country for racial justice protests is not because his experience was so unique, but in part because his experience and the experience of his family are so common.
0: That's reporter Tolu Olurinipa.
4: If you ask the question, why did George Floyd come into the world poor? Why are millions of other people who look like George Floyd poor? White families have 10 times the wealth of the typical Black family. And that is something that, according to scholars, has been built up over time.
0: George Floyd's story begins in 1973, when he was born in North Carolina. But to answer that question of why he was born poor, you have to go a lot further back. My name is Angela Harrelson.
5: I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I am George Floyd's aunt. His mother is my sister.
4: Floyd's family had spent more than a century in North Carolina.:
5: Well, my great-grandmother' name was Larcenia Stewart, and that is who a George Floyd mother is named after, Larcenia Floyd. And Larsenia was married to my great-grandfather, whose name is Hillary Thomas Stewart. Now, Hillary Thomas Stewart, he was born a slave, and he did not become a free man and get his free papers until he was eight years old.
0: The arc of Floyd's family is so similar to that of so many Americans. They were formerly enslaved people who became free after the Civil War, and they were left to try to figure out how to build a life and a future.
4: After the Civil War, he started working on the farms, the tobacco farms of of North Carolina.
5: By the time my great-grandfather got to age of 21, he bought his first property, and he accumulated over 500 acres of land. And my great-aunt Manny, she's passed away now, she said that my grandfather did pretty well in that time. They used to call them the rich niggers. That's what they referred to our family was.
4: But shortly after he became successful, he lost all of that land to white settlers.
5: When I heard this, the land was stolen from him, the story was he couldn't read and write through deception and fraud of the white officials, taxes and things. He didn't have a chance. He did not have a chance.
4: He was not literate. Back in the 1800s, it was not legal for African-Americans to learn how to read, especially during the slavery period. And he was not able to fight back in the courts. Who are you going to fight? You complain to
5: people, they just take the land away. So all the land was stolen.
0: So that
5: legacy is gone.
0: Obviously, none of this is Surprising per se, but when you talk about the idea of, you know, his family had 500 acres of, of land, like that's a lot. That's a real form of wealth. And the idea that it could just be like snapped away from them and snapped away from their descendants is just, it's really galling to wrap your head around.
4: Yeah, it is pretty galling and it was not a unique experience for, you know, successful farmers who were African-American to find their wealth targeted by those who did not want to see them doing well.
5: Well, you know, a lot of black people own a lot of land. People don't realize that they own a lot of land that they work for, but because they could not fight the white power, they didn't have a chance of hell keeping it back then. Who, who are you going to run to?
4: The United States Commission on Civil Rights back in 1982 did a report that looked at the decline of Black farmers from the Civil War all the way through the 20th century, and they found a pattern. As soon as Black farms become successful, become profitable, they become acquired by white farmers, in many cases through legally questionable means, especially early on after the Civil War. And that was a a common experience.
0: And for families like George Floyd's family, the only clear way to make a living was through a different system, one that didn't look all that different from slavery. It was a system known as sharecropping.
4: So essentially how the system worked was a white farmer or white landowner would allow an African-American family to become a tenant farmer on the farm, living on the farm, working on the farm. And at the end of the harvest, the family would have to deliver much of the harvest to the landowner. And the tools for the work, the resources, the seeds often came from the white landowner at a price that had to be paid at the end of the day by the Black family that was working the farm that made it very difficult for the Black family to escape debt or create any kind of wealth accumulation.
0: That system continued through the late 1800s and the early and mid-1900s, all the way through to the time that Angela and her sister Sissy were born.
5: Now, my mother and my father and my grandfather, they spent their lives being most of the time sharecroppers. That's what my mom did. And we worked in those tobacco fields, in the corn fields, and that's how most of us were able to pay for our school clothes. If you did not work, you did not have a place to stay. So we always knew that we had to work to stay in that house, even though it was an old raggedy shack, wasn't worth anything. We had the outhouse. We had a little electricity. But that's all that we had. That's all that we knew.
4: They were able to work the land, but they had to share the harvest with the landowner. And any time there was a dispute or if the landowner decided to change their wages or change the rules they didn't really have much legal recourse.
5: And we were cheated a lot of the times. There was one time that they thought they would do my father a favor and let us have some extra tobacco to help the family throughout the year. So my father said, you know what? They gave us, this is extra money. So we're going to work really hard. Well, guess what they did? My brother later told me and told me they set the tobacco barn on fire. Our tobacco that we put in extra It was set on fire, and the sharecropper owner got the insurance money for it. So we were out again.
4: When you do look across the statistics, African Americans in in the country continue to suffer from uh, poverty at inflated levels from lack of wealth at an inflated level compared to white Americans. And Floyd's experience is not unique in that way. It's an experience shared by millions of Americans, millions of people who look like him, who have struggled to try to make ends meet, even in the 21st century.
5: So it was very frustrating. And that's why I think my parents never own anything. It's not like our family didn't try. Because our great-grandfather, Hillary Thomas Sr., he did try. But here's the thing. We try, we get knocked down. We try, we get knocked down.
0: They tried, they got knocked down. That was the story of the Floyd family experience in the Jim Crow South. That's what made it nearly impossible for them to buy a home. Do you know we didn't have any money for a down payment? None of us never even heard of a down payment back in those days, you know that's what confirmed to them again and again that they were in fact second class citizens
5: i grew up with the mindset okay you don't enter a white person front door you always had to go into back door
0: and trying and getting knocked down that was basically the story of george floyd's grandmother's attempts to get her children a quality education
5: my mother was so determined because she wanted more than anything for all her kids to graduate with a high school diploma, because she never did. So her
0: vision for us was getting a high school diploma. But that vision was difficult to achieve, even as late as the 1970s, right around the time that George Floyd was born, when schools in North Carolina were supposed to be desegregated.
5: People were getting used to the idea still. There were school teachers that said before they
0: teach a black person, they will quit. And they did. And it wasn't just like an inconvenience for George Floyd's mom and aunts and uncles. It was this constant trauma from racism, this low hum of fear and weariness that could get triggered by something as simple as waiting for the school bus.
5: There was one incident in the 70s that they wouldn't let us ride that school bus. One particular day we walk and the school bus passes by. And it had signs up there saying, this is the white train, not the soul train. And we're like, well, I guess we gotta turn around and go back.
0: The school bus saga was actually a long drawn out thing that paints a pretty clear picture of what it was like to be a black kid in North Carolina at the time and how George Floyd's family tried to rise to meet that racism.
5: But by then it was the worst thing because when we finally did get a chance to ride the school bus, they threw trash at us, they called us name. And the worst thing, they would not let us sit down They took their feet and put their feet in the empty seat so we couldn't sit down. And the meanest thing was that bus driver. He would drive around those curves as fast as he could. And you know why he did that? So we could fall and lean on them. Me and my twin sister held on for dear life. But my friend James Rowe, he accidentally fell. It was just a little bit. He couldn't help it. And that, stood, that guy stood up, and he took his hand and just hit him as hard as he could. You could even see the print. There was a student, and the bus driver were laughing. And I froze, and I was scared. Tears ran down poor James' eyes. We were scared to death. And so we told our mother about it, and she said, you guys are just going to have to fight And we're like, (laughs) how are we going to win? And see, my mother attitude was that you're going to graduate. But that day came that we We had to get on that bus. And my mother walked with us to make sure we got on that bus. <laughs> so we couldn't go back. So, anyway, I remember looking back and she had her hands on hands her head, nodding her head. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so, the only way to go was forward.
0: George was born just a few years later, in 1973, at a time when it was unclear whether his experience as a Black kid in the South would be all that different from the experience of his mom and his aunts and uncles. See, um,
5: they live with us on and off a little bit. Because when I was in, oh, about like 16, George was probably like four or five, I'm thinking. So he was running around there with no shirt on, just mischievous, and he would always around his mom he was a mama's boy to be honest but he was the cutest thing and me and my sister swore he looked like flip wilson when he was young and he <laughs> you, you you're too young to know about flip Wilson. do you know flip wilson he was a comedian that wore this wig and I always said what you see
2: is what you get <laughs> look all you want what you see is a lot more than what you're gonna get <laughs>
0: You know what
2: I'm saying? And we just teased
5: Perry. Perry, what you see is what you get. He didn't know what we talking about, but he would imitate us. What you see is what you get. <laughs> it was so funny. So anyway, uh, but Sissy was, oh, she was the life of the party, you know, because she was so sweet. She ended up um, meeting a
0: young man, and that's
5: how they moved to Houston.
0: In 1977, Sissy Floyd moved George and her other children to Houston. She wanted to put the tobacco fields behind her, start a new life in Texas. But the fact that her parents were poor and her grandparents were poor meant that she was poor too. And when she arrived in Houston, the most obvious place for a poor woman with three children to find housing was CUNY Homes.
6: CUNY Homes is a housing project sort of smack dab in the middle of Third Ward. It's what once was one of the poorest communities in Houston. Now it's rapidly gentrifying.
0: That's reporter R. Hernandez, who picks up the story of George Floyd's life in Texas.
6: Around the time that Cuny Homes was built, around a half century ago, it was built primarily for you know low-income workers, who were part of the the industries uh, that at the time you know railroad workers and and other types of low-income industries. The families who live there have been there for you know two or three generations, and. Though it feels like a family because so many people have been there for so long, it's beset by all kinds of problems and while the world around it sort of changes and rents go up, CUNY Homes has remained sort of this haven for folks who can't get out of perpetual poverty.
7: You know, and this this is his land, you know, this is where the streets that he walked, you raised up on, you know what I mean? This is his neighborhood.
6: So I'm standing outside the Blue Store, the Scott Mart, which is a convenience store right near CUNY Homes, with Travis Keynes. He considers himself a an older brother of George Floyd. I am the closest, one of the closest friends that he had. They grew up together. They played basketball together. They
7: went to school together. Man, we were when he was like six years old. You know, we was a kid when they first got to you know from North Carolina. We I've been over there ever since. I helped them move in. So what, what was George like growing up? Was he a lot like his mom? Well, he was smart, energetic, athletic. He loved, you know, being around music. He loved being around sports. He loved being around his friends. He just a normal kid.
6: He had very fond memories of George's mother in particular, Miss Sissy. Tell you me know? about Larsenia Floyd. What was she like?
7: Beautiful. Heart-giving, did we couldn't turn the food or whatever or any kind of advice you could get, you could get it from Miss Lucentia, you know what I mean, you can get it from Miss sister. If it's food in that house, you're not going to go hungry. People, Other people put food in the house for her to cook. So you know, she fed a village, put it to you like that. That one lady fed a village.
6: George was super close to his mother. His mother was his guiding light, his wisdom, her pride. And as the big brother of the family, George felt a lot of responsibility to set an example for his younger brothers and sisters about, you know, how to manage this life.
0: And part of how to manage this life was
6: getting used to having cops around you all the time. Growing up, police were everywhere in George's life. You know, going to the corner, he'd see a patrol car pass by. Walking to school, cops harassing them and asking what was in their book bags, and they were just going to school, right? Picture yourself, you have a craving for ice cream late night.
7: Say you go to the store to get some ice cream, just a pint of ice cream, just because you have a craving for ice cream, you know, like you can regularly get in your car, go to the store, 24-hour store, you get your ice cream, you come out the store, you pull out the driveway, anything and you get stopped by the cops just to be in stock. Threw down on the ground, uh, car tore apart, that same pint of ice cream threw on the ground. That's what we went through.
6: There is always an aura of suspicion around who they were, where they grew up, uh, and, and whatever they were doing. You
0: know, you're automatically suspect. And there was a reason
6: why the residents of
0: CUNY Homes were constantly dealing with police. Why just walking around the neighborhood meant that you were a potential
6: suspect of a crime. Third Ward was a place where a cop could easily sort of, you know, make their numbers, right? At that time, there were sort of twisted incentives for police departments to get federal grants based on the number of arrests that they made. And Third Ward, because of all the drugs that were moving through, not just Third Ward, but through the community in Houston in general... Making arrests there was really sort of just low-hanging fruit. But what was crime like around here growing up? Was it was it as bad as everyone says
4: it? Yeah,
7: yeah, it was rough. Yeah, it was it was rough, I mean, because you could look outside your door and see a lot of shit going on, fights, murders, everything. It's the hood, you know what I mean? Like, it's the ghetto. It's nothing that we haven't seen. We seen from extortion. We seen bad cops. Police brutality was like normal. You know what I'm saying? Like that that was that's that's like it's like really normal. You know what I'm saying? We seen killings that we can't even talk about. Cause we were scared to talk about it. You know what I'm saying? Because if you talked about it, you know what I'm saying? You know, when you go up around here, you know you you see and you don't see. You know, and to live a long time, you keep your nose on your face. You know what I'm saying? You keep your nose out of other people's business. And that's why you lived a long time.
6: That's how you survive.
7: That's one of the reasons I survive. That's the
6: main reason. George at this time was sort of a driven young man. He was involved in sports, he was a super gifted athlete, both in basketball and football. George was a big kid from from very young. He grew to be 6'6", 6'7", you know, 200 plus pounds. He's just a machine of muscle. (laughs) He was light on his feet and, you know, had these long arms that were just suited for athletics. And at the time, he was encouraged by people in his community into sports because that was the only way out, or at least that was sort of the perceived way. And he was determined to play professionally in college and beyond.
0: George Floyd attended Jack Yates High School, two blocks down from CUNY Holmes. He played basketball, and he played football.
2: Man, this is probably the best, best, right best play he ever made while playing for oh, Arthur? Yeah. yeah, that was a hell of a kiss. That was a catch, man.
0: Last month, some of Floyd's old classmates and his football friends met up back at Yates. They were there to talk about who George Floyd was and what he was like.
2: My name is Vaughn Dickerson, graduate of Jack Yates High School, class of 1993.
7: My name is Herbert Mouton, Jack Yates, class of 1993.
3: My name is Jonathan Veal, class of 1993. My name is Gerald Moore, friend of George Floyd, class of 93, Jack Yates, senior high school.
0: For students attending Yates, sports were a huge deal especially back in the 80s and 90s, when Von Dickerson and George Floyd went there.
2: This was the initial field, but it was the field of dreams. It was, uh, at that point in time, we were the most uh, sought after high school in Texas. We was the best high school football program in Texas, and the basketball program was very elite also. Yates was so important, where well, today is game day Friday. The band will be marching out from here and going to the stadium. They would block traffic and everybody from inside third wall would be marching behind the band. So when everybody hit a band, all the third wall would come out and just follow the band. And they'll march down that street and they'll go into the stadium. And then the football players would come out and they'll walk. They were able to walk. And it was just like being in the Hall of Fame at that time. It was like, wow. Have you And we were freshmen. We were like, man, that's us. It's us. They call it marching motion. A halftime marching band of Jack Gates High School in Houston.
3: But for the
0: record, when George Floyd got to Yates, what he really wanted to do was play basketball. Well, well we all thought
2: yeah. it was basketball yeah. we yeah. love basketball. Yeah. But he had to play football. Because yeah. they weren't going to let you walk this hour and be 6'6 and think you just finna go play basketball.
3: So back then, Coach McGon, he used to be so hands-on and, and so into the program that if you looked like you could play football, you had to come out here and, and, and put some pads on. If you could play, you was you, you had was to playing, play. Yeah, it, yeah. Wasn't
2: no, yeah. it wasn't no
3: alternatives. The level of intensity was so great, it, it, it made me nervous and it scared me. I came to practice in the summertime and I saw all the dudes out here, and I didn't show up for another week.
0: Just for context, this is Gerald Moore. Like former NFL running back Gerald Moore.
2: Ah, it was hell. <laughs> it's hot. Uh, you don't want to be out here. Coaches riding you, and you don't forget you. You with the best of the best. We had a, a lot of guys go pro. You dealing with number division one guys. So every day it's like two pit bulls. You going at it. You going at it. You going at it.
3: You know, Florida not being a really aggressive guy. So. And he had to play tight end and defensive end. And defensive end. So he played both ways. It was on enough. He didn't want to play it, but. So he was kind of forced into, he was got yeah, kind of for- on defense. <laughs> <laughs> it was too physical for him. Yeah. He, he gave a level of stability. You had to pay attention to him. He's the biggest guy on the field. So even if he didn't get the ball, he was a threat because he was so big. They used to call him tree branch the opposing team would call him tree branch and tease him and say, watch out for tree branch. Watch out for tree branch. So, cause his arms were so long and he, he would do his best but just blocking is it. just not his game. Floyd didn't like to block. He's a basketball player. So the tight end we run a play it's called 14. And it's a play where I get the ball on a dive play. Floyd is supposed to release outside and block the strong safety. He never really made it to block the strong safety. And I would always have to either run over the strong safety or make the strong safety miss. But I would notice every time I would score a touchdown, George would be in the end zone before I got there almost every time. And I was like, is he down here getting blocks or what is he doing? So after a couple of games, I noticed it kept happening. And I'm like, I said, what's going on? And he said, well, you scoring touchdowns. I want to be in the paper too. Every week, there would be a photo in the chronicle or the post at that time of whoever scored a touchdown. So he wanted to get in the end zone to be able to get in the photo too. So he would always be there with his hands raised. He would be running on the side of me. I was like, okay, I guess that makes
0: sense. Yates was a legendary place to play football. But the reality was that they often played schools from wealthier communities that had a lot more money. So football became a way to kind of stick it to them, a place to even the playing field.
2: For us, at that time, coming out the ghetto and... When the
1: playoffs hit, Coach McGonaghan, <laughs> he's always telling, hey, guys, it's the rich against the poor. Yeah. <laughs> it's the rich against the poor.
6: Was that a motivator? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it
1: is. <laughs> yeah, it is. The rich against the poor.
2: Now that I'm old, I can see this school was an outlet for us. I was just about to say, you get away from your reality. Right. When Floyd went home, you got to realize is going into the
1: projects. You have to think about where Floyd came from. Floyd was in survival mode. No, Floyd was carrying a lot He had a poor family A single mother household
2: Seven, eight people in the house You got I know it was days Floyd went home They probably ain't had no food or nothing But he never complained He never showed it I know it was days He came to school With no lunch money You know, he never complained He never showed it He was out here every day Running, practicing Like it was nothing wrong wrong. wrong. You know, but we know Because we go to the house And we know We poor man Like, man
0: and as much as everyone remembers George Floyd being a smart, hardworking kid, under the circumstances, it could feel inevitable that school would take a backseat to sports, because it had to.
2: Our goal was just to pass, pass, and get on the football field. And we, and I, and I back then, for a young black male, and it's sad to say, our way out was sports. Other than that, it was drugs. It, it, to us, it wasn't no other way out to get out. It wasn't no other ticket out. You idolize the drug dealers when you stepped off the corner because they had the Cadillacs, the cars, the jewelry. And you're like, wow, man, and then, because you didn't have nothing. Then when you get here, it's sports. You got the University of Miami after them, Colorado, Michigan after these guys. The Dukes in North Carolina they come to us for no grades. They came to us because we were good. And they were like, who is this? Who is this? What grade are they in? Da, 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 because we were so talented. They weren't worried about no books. They looking who can boost their basketball program to get them and keep their keep they jobs going.
0: So this was the gamble. If you were a tall athletic black kid in the third ward in the 90s, you poured your focus and your ambition into sports because people told you you were good at it. They told you you were made for it and they told you that it was the only way out. But if you didn't turn out to be that lucky star recruit, you were left struggling to even pass the test to graduate.
2: It was people who had 2.8, 2.9 GPA, but they just couldn't pass the test. And Floyd got caught up in that boat we all graduated, and then uh, he was like, man, I'm going back, I'm going to pass it, et cetera, and he ended up getting it and Florida, Florida. going to South Florida.
6: So George was in college in Florida and then later Kingsville, Texas, around 1996, 1995, He wasn't having much success in the college courses that he was taking or in athletics in the field. He just wasn't getting the opportunities that he had hoped for. Drawn back to Houston, maybe like a couple months after he arrived back in Houston in 1997, he got his first felony conviction for cocaine delivery, selling drugs, tiny, tiny amount, less than a gram. But this state jail felony essentially put him in a position where he served 10 months for that. It was supposed to be, it was initially designed to put him in a local, you know, sort of county jail or a jail that was close to home and provide some kind of rehabilitation services. That never happened. The state never funded those programs. And so those state jails now today have some of the highest recidivism rates in the country. And so this is the system that George was going into with that first felony.
0: That the idea that this was going to be a program that was going to be able to get him back on the right track and to rehabilitate him, but that it ended up just being prison and nothing more
6: helpful. Exactly. I, that was the, the folks who were rewriting the Texas penal code at the time. That was their vision that this would be sort of an alternative to like a higher level or higher degree felony that would take you to state prison and said you'd go to a, like a local jail and you'd be in, a, in some kind of program that will help you get back on your feet. That never happened. And so he came back to a situation where he couldn't get a job. He didn't have access to financial aid, which is if he wanted to go back to school, he probably couldn't afford it. He had court fees to pay for that would accumulate over time. So he was already sort of being buried by the choice that he made, of course, but also by a system that makes it really hard to try and live your life after this thing has happened to you.
0: And so how did that play out from him from there? The fact that he had this one felony conviction, how did that lead to others?
6: Well, so he couldn't get a job uh, (laughs) and he didn't have much opportunity, many opportunities to do other things. So he got in trouble again for selling drugs Uh, a couple more times. He fell in with folks who were committing crimes as well. I mean, he tried to, you know, work with local rappers. He was a a part of sort of the the rap scene that was developing in Third Ward at the time. (laughs) Going, dying on sand. In fact, George's voice is on the like, tracks of a bunch of these
3: albums.
6: He, I think, saw it more as a hobby. I haven't heard from any of his friends that it was actually his aspiration to become a rapper. But because George really, you know, he didn't have any money, he didn't have anything else going for him, he made choices to engage in in certain behaviors that led him to several convictions. And sometimes there are questions as to whether, you know, he even committed the crime. For example, in 2004, he was busted on another sort of cocaine, less than a gram of cocaine by an officer who is now fired from HPD. Gerald Goins, and who prosecutors are now reviewing all of his cases to see whether they are, in fact, legitimate because he was accused of fabricating evidence in a lot of those cases. George, in 2004, I believe, was one of, you know, the people that he arrested for like a $10 drug buy. So there, you know, even in George's sort of record, there are some questions as to whether some of these charges were, in fact, legitimate.
0: And the fact that he kept going back to jail, kept getting arrested, kept getting put in prison. What was your sense of the reaction from the people who knew him at the time or from his family or even from his mom? Like, were they surprised to see that?
6: I get the sense that they were surprised and not surprised in the sense that like that it just didn't compute with George's personality, particularly he got charged with theft and was accused of pointing a gun at someone early on, I think, in 1998 and in that case, you know, Travis specifically told me that, you know, they couldn't believe it, right? That 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 was, you know, something that George would do. It just didn't it didn't fit his personality.
7: You know, when you called me, they man, man, what you think, big brother, what you think? Like, you know, what I think, I think, man, if, if you had, you know, you was around in any type of way, you know, I know he didn't run in and do all that, you know what I'm saying, what they say he did. But you was in the mix. You know what I mean? If you was in the mix, go ahead, take what you can get, and come on home.
0: In 2013, George Floyd got out of prison for the last time. And by that point, he felt like he was done with it. He hated prison. It made him claustrophobic. And the portrait that we have of George Floyd at this time is really complicated. Despite his personal struggles, he still maintained a good reputation in the community.
6: George commanded a lot of respect in in CUNY homes. He sort of represented this person who had who'd gone through a hell and and came out the other end, and had lived to tell the story. And so he advised a lot of younger. He he played on the basketball courts and in, in CUNY homes. He got involved with like a church ministry. He sort of fashioned himself into a role model who could talk about, you know, the ugly parts of life, but also encourage people to try and overcome and and to figure out ways to triumph despite, you know, the circumstances. And he already was, you know, had built this reputation, you know, I'm going to, towering reputation of sorts from his athletic exploits like people still talk about George's performance in the state championship game and you know and how how gifted he was so he he already had a platform in CUNY Homes and as an adult he sort of built on that as someone who you know who could advise and offer wisdom
0: this was all part of the complexity of George Floyd's life in Houston In one way, he had this visible, enriching public life. He was a mentor and a community builder and a guy who was just willing to help other people. But in his private life, there's also evidence that he continued to struggle.
6: Throughout the reporting of this series, there was a question that came up constantly, and that was about George's relationship with drugs. If you ask his family and friends they would tell you that it, it was inevitable, right, that growing up in Third Ward and CUNY Homes that, you know, drugs would become a part of your life. But they would say, you know, but he wasn't an addict and he was a casual drug user. However, from court records and from the fact that he was enrolled in drug treatment programs in Minnesota and had been offered drug treatment programs while he was still in Houston, there seems to be more to the story and that George did use drugs fairly regularly. But again, it's something that we haven't been able to untangle completely.
0: At the time, there just weren't a lot of places for people with addiction issues in the third ward to find help. Rehab and treatment centers were chronically underfunded in Texas. And the opportunities for help were even fewer for people with criminal records. So it seemed like George Floyd was kind of out of luck. But then something happened to him that changed the course of his life. And it happened outside the corner store next to CUNY Homes.
8: So as he's hanging out at the blues Store...
0: That's reporter Robert Samuels.
8: One day... One of his friends drives up in this nice rental SUV, and the friend's name is Aubrey Rose.
1: My name is Aubrey Rhodes. I'm one of the floor of homeboys from the neighborhood.
0: Like a lot of people in the Third Ward, Rhodes had been struggling with drugs.
1: Well, then I was I was in the street of Third Ward, man. I was going through a, a lot of crises in my life. You know what I'm saying, you know, so I had, went to the penitentiary. I got out of jail. Then I wanted to change my life.
0: Then one day, Rhodes had left to make that change out of state.
1: And Aubrey
8: Rhodes steps out of the car. He's looking a little pudgier than he used to look. His skin is more vibrant. He's less jaundiced.
1: So me and Floyd had a one-on-one talk. He said, man, where you at? I say, man, I'm in Minneapolis, man. I'm saying I'm getting my life together in Minneapolis.
8: Aubrey tells him, I found a job and I got off drugs. So that when he said, man, get me up there. And Aubrey Rhodes gives him the phone number of a pastor named Johnny Riles.
9: Okay, my name is Pastor John Riles. Well, our church is in the Third Ward community.
8: Now, Johnny Riles, he's sort of well-known in the neighborhood.
9: We come here in 1999, 99, and we found this old building, and my wife and I took this old building and remodeled it. We did most of the work to it. And... He tells this story about moving
8: to the Third Ward and just sort of being shocked by the amount of crime there was in the place. He realized that his mission, more so than having a bricks-and-mortar church, was to find ways to stop the shooting and all the drugs that were going
9: on in the Third Ward. To rescue people and help be, build or rebuild people's lives. Most of the people that we service here in this area are people that have great need. There was a lot of uh, high school dropouts, people that were on drugs and alcohol, people coming out of prisons. There was a lot of homeless people and still are that needed help.
8: And so he starts trying to hook up people from the third ward with different rehabilitation services so they could lead healthier and more productive lives.
9: And that's where we started our ministry of partnering with people all over the United States. Minneapolis is just one of the uh, locations that we found partners. So one day George
8: Floyd comes and meets Johnny Rawls in his church.
9: And when we met him, he was a very delightful guy. He's uh, very respectful, uh, especially to me as a minister. Had a strong desire for change. And Pastor
8: Riles, he has an intake form. And they start going over certain questions. His history with drug use, his history with the criminal justice system, his work history, his education. Pastor Riles concludes that George Floyd doesn't need a simple fix.
9: I thought that George, and he wanted a change. He wanted to change the environment, clean slate, you know, new start, fresh start, new beginning. He suggests that George Floyd
8: leave Houston and go to a nine-month program at the Salvation Army in Minneapolis. That's pretty all-encompassing it teaches work skills, it has some rehabilitation services, it teaches life practices.
9: Minneapolis, that city uh, has a heart for people. It really has the heart to help people rebuild their lives. I mean, uh, they're willing to invest their resources in folks.
0: And what's your sense of how George Floyd was feeling as he was facing the prospect of moving to a completely different part of the country where he didn't really know anyone to kind of start a new life.
8: So from what his friends and family say, George Floyd had a typical reaction whenever a big change in your life is looming. You know, there's a part of you, you wake up one day that says, yes, I want to do this. And then you wake up another day and you say, but this is such a big change. And then something happens in the world and it gives George Floyd inspiration.
6: You know the matchup by now for Super Bowl 51, the New England Patriots and the Atlanta Falcons.
8: The Super Bowl is played in Houston, And the next year...
3: Uh, We are pleased to announce that Super Bowl 52 in 2018 will be played in Minnesota.
8: And so George Floyd concludes that he's going to follow the Super Bowl. (laughs) So the Sunday after the Super Bowl in Houston, he gets on a bus and he goes to Minneapolis. Minneapolis.
0: George Floyd arrived in Minneapolis in February of 2017. He gets off this Greyhound bus, and he has a familiar face to greet him.
1: Well, it was a cold day. I'm saying he had called me on the phone, say he was on the bus. When he got to uh, Minneapolis, he called me. I'm saying, where you at? I'm saying. So I was walking over. We walked over there from Salvation Army to the Greyhound bus station.
8: So George Floyd steps off the bus in a sweatshirt and a couple layers of clothes, and George Floyd's first words in Minneapolis. He had
1: told me, boy, it's cold out here. I said, yeah, man, you had to get some change. I'm saying that's how I changed my life.
0: And Floyd was really hopeful that moving to Minneapolis was the change that he needed. But that change didn't end up coming from the program that his pastor had found at the Salvation Army.
1: Once we took him over there, he didn't like that program. Then I said, man, I got another spot, man. You want, this, this is a good spot for you, man.
0: Instead, Floyd started to hear about this other program, one that was tailored to people like him.
8: The name of the program is Turning Point. And that program is geared specifically for African-Americans to help heal African-Americans and more specifically African-American men.
0: This program specifically speaks to Black history and culture. They talk about systemic racism and how that affects the ability of Black people to recover and heal. They talk about stuff like segregated housing and microaggressions and how that can affect your health.
8: They take a toll on our physical selves. They raise cortisol levels due to the increase in stress. And those raised levels and heightened levels of inflammation make Black people more susceptible to things like diabetes and hypertension and heart disease, two of the three things that George Floyd had.
0: Racism makes you sick. And what makes it worse is that services like Turning Point that address racism specifically are hard to find and chronically underfunded. A major way that you can see this is in how the federal government has reacted to public health crises. In the last 40 years, there have been two drug epidemics in this country, the crack epidemic in the 80s and the opioid epidemic that's unfolding now. The crack epidemic predominantly affected Black communities. And when it came to federal dollars for things like drug treatment, prevention, and education, it elicited virtually no funding from Congress. Compare that against the opioid crisis, which also affected white people. That has received billions in funding for those same services.
8: And so what that meant was that there is less of an incentive for psychiatrists, for mental health professionals, for public health experts, for research, to actually delve into ways to treat Black people who show mental health issues and show substance abuse issues.
0: So George Floyd landed in one of the few treatment centers specifically geared toward Black people. And it was there that he started opening up. He talked about how disappointed he was that he never became a professional athlete. He was now in his 40s with children of his own, looking for answers and a sense of purpose. And if sports were not going to define his future, what would?
8: So when George Floyd leaves Turning Point, things start going pretty well for him. And he's excited about his progress. He gets a job, a security job at the Salvation Army. He gets another one at this Latin nightclub called Conga. The owner of Conga owns rental properties around Minneapolis, and he rents to George Floyd this really nice town home in a really tony part of town. It's near a lot of Big, sprawling single-family homes it overlooks sparkling waters.
0: And for the first time, George Floyd was living in the white part of town. He told his friends that he'd never encountered police officers before like the ones in this neighborhood. Police officers who smiled and waved at him. It was very weird. And George was living with a roommate, a friend that he'd met at Turning Point.
8: And that friend's name is Eric Cornley. And everyone calls his friend Big E. And everyone calls George Floyd, Big Floyd. And they bond because their trajectories are kind of similar. They're both two large black dudes, hence Big Floyd and Big E. Uh, They bond over the fact that they both played sports and had some time in college. They both came from another place to Minneapolis to heal. And so their friendship was based on the idea that they were on this similar journey together, that there were two large Black guys who moved to an incredibly white state to learn how to become better Black men. So Big Floyd and Big E, they move into this three-bedroom townhome with this nice basement where they put all this workout equipment in. But because they want to look out for each other, They take their mattresses and they put them next to one another in the dining room so they could sleep near one another. And George Floyd begins to feel really good about his life. And his family back in Houston, they're hearing these stories and they're saying, go on, George, you're doing so well.
0: And what happens after that?
8: So in October of 2017, George Floyd comes into the house And he smells something amiss. Something smells really foul. He looks for Big E, his roommate, and can't find him. So he walks downstairs to the basement. And there's Big E passed out on the floor unconscious. Oh, my gosh. So then George Floyd, he cleans him up. And he calls the cops. He calls the police and paramedics come, and it turns out that Biggie had a drug overdose and he died.
0: Mm. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. What kind of effect did that have on George Floyd?
8: So, everyone who knew George Floyd in Minneapolis, they talk about this instance as really messing him up because it was the first episode in Minneapolis. That seemed like an episode that he would have faced in Houston. And he saw himself in Big E. They were two guys on the same sort of journey. And he begins to wonder, well, if this can happen to my friend, what might happen to me? And he begins to realize that some of the issues that he thought he could run away from in Houston would follow him in Minneapolis.
0: So how did life continue on for him from that point? I mean, it sounds like he was on a positive trajectory and then not so much.
8: He continues at this job where he's very well-respected. He gets a girlfriend who he becomes really close with. He finds two new roommates who try to make the place more tranquil by putting up African art everywhere. But those who know him talk about This constant slingshot where it feels like every time he started to take a step toward a life he wanted, something would happen that would draw him back. And he had to try and find a sense of fortitude to continue going. For example, he begins to dream about becoming a truck driver. His brother is a truck driver. It's a very popular job in Texas. And he thinks it could allow him to get some financial freedom to help improve his life, but also improve the life of his family back home. So he tries to take the tests for the permit. Then he can't get the permit at first because he owes fees back in Texas that prohibit him from getting a license, then he can't complete all the training to get the full commercial driver's license because he has to work. And he can't find a regular 9-to-5 job that would allow him to work and then go to get this trucking license because of his arrest record. And his friends say, the only jobs that would give George Floyd a chance are the jobs that looked at his big intimidating stature and said, yes, that's the type of person I want, a big black man. Hmm.
0: So basically being a bouncer.
8: Yeah. So he found jobs as a bodyguard. He found jobs lifting heavy things. He found jobs intimidating people and kicking them out of nightclubs. But he couldn't find a steady nine-to-five job. And because those jobs worked at night, he was really tired in the day, which precluded his ability to be able to get that CDL. Now, the other thing had to do with his own financial stability. He had some kids back home and he owed child support. And so even when he got these checks, they would be pretty paltry. And so he's spinning his wheels a lot to try and get his life together, to get some sort of sense of stability. But there are all these challenges that, from his past that he can't fully move past. So about a half year after Biggie dies, George Floyd gets a phone call And he hears his mother, Larsenia Sissy Floyd has also died. And he felt more isolated and alone than he had ever felt before. And then there was also this economic toll that George Floyd, even though he lived in Minneapolis, he still kind of prided himself on being the man of that house in Houston. He was the oldest boy. And he was known to send money and clothes back home. And so George Floyd felt this real scramble to be able to get his finances together so he could not only build up his life, but provide some stability to the people back home who now had to take care and play a bigger role in raising these grandchildren that Sissy Floyd was raising. Now, his friends talk about that after his mother died, they saw another change in George Floyd. His new roommates talk about him just being in his room for hours and hours instead of being downstairs on his plush couch watching ESPN on the big screen. And sometimes they'd hear him reciting these Bible verses to himself, and sometimes they just hear him cry. And his roommates would have to knock on the door and say, George, you got to come out. You got to come eat. And so after George Lloyd's mom dies, life doesn't get easier for him. He's consumed with trying to get the CDL. His coworkers at the nightclub, they talk about him being less reliable, coming to work on time, became less frequent, there was an incident where he was sleeping at the nightclub. The owner says he was still one of the best workers, even though he started to slip a little bit. And his roommates and his friends began to feel that he was showing serious signs of depression. And they tried helping him with it. But they also knew something else, because a lot of them had gone through the program at Turning Point. And they also knew that these sorts of conditions the continual specter of death, the feelings of uncertainty, the economic instability. Those are prime conditions for a person to begin to relapse or to increase their dependency on drugs.
0: And so that's what happened?
8: Well, some of them began to worry about it. But when George Floyd died, they did find fentanyl and methamphetamine in his system. And the sad truth of it is that for the people who knew him, although no one will say they knew George Floyd to have a drug issue, they weren't surprised to see those things in his system because the conditions of his life created a scenario in which a number of people Black, white, criminal record or not, would start to depend on opioids, and so he fell into a crisis, another crisis that was much larger than him.
0: And that's where George Floyd was at in his life when, on Memorial Day, it's in your hands. he went to Cup Foods, and a cashier thought that they noticed a counterfeit twenty and called police. Very nice,
4: Step out of the vehicle and step away from me, all right? Up, step out and face away. <laughs> step like, out and face away. Don't
3: you, please don't shoot me, please,
4: man. I'm not going to shoot please. you. Step out and face don't, away. I'm
3: going to get you out of the man.
7: Please don't shoot me,
3: man. I'm not shooting you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I just lost
4: my mom, <laughs> man. Out. Step out and face away.
7: <laughs> so sorry.
4: Step out and face <laughs> away.
0: The lawyers who are defending the police involved in George Floyd's killing, they say that Floyd died because of a drug overdose and that they needed to subdue him because he was acting erratically. Floyd's attorneys and his friends and loved ones find that allegation ridiculous.
8: They say it didn't have much to do with his behavior because when George Floyd was confronted by the cops he was respectful. He said, yes, sir, and no, sir. He asked them not to go into the police car because he was claustrophobic. But then there's also something that I think is really important. And this is the part that resonates with all of George Floyd's friends and so many Black people and specifically Black men. were taught, that your body, your very presence, is so easily criminalized. And so you see these arguments, again, that are so familiar to Black people in this country, that aggressive steps needed to be taken to subdue this man.
5: I'm being honest with you, it is very exhausted. Because they come with you with this mentality that, you're dangerous, you're already a criminal, you're already convicted. And they have that, the police have this um, runaway slave mentality. That's what they have. When they stop brown and Black people, they're stopping them as though they are a runaway slave.
0: Angela, George's aunt, still lives in Minneapolis. And she still feels like there's this fundamental unfairness in how his death has been characterized.
5: When they try to... Assassinate his character because of his chemical dependency, and that he was this and he was that, and he—it's like it's like they're justifying why he deserved to die, you know. And I think that's wrong. I'm not saying nobody in the family never said Perry was a saint. Nobody, at least I'm not saying it. I never said he did never went to prison. I, no one ever said any of that stuff. At least I can say I'm not saying it. But he was a human being. And so I want to ask these people that are saying that, did he really deserve to die like that?
8: No. One thing that is true about people who have gone through rehabilitation programs like this is there's a lot of talk about purpose. And one of the things the leaders at Turning Point try to remind folks is that God had a purpose for George Floyd that his death provided an opportunity for the world to see things that they previously could not see. And that's a gift to the world. But for the friends and family of George Floyd, sometimes it feels like an incredibly cruel gift.
5: Lord, I just feel robbed. And and just let you know you don't have all the time in the world. You can't even guarantee next thirty minutes. I just thought we had all the time. People said, "Why can you guys and do this together?" Because we honestly thought that we had all the time in the world. And now, here I am in Minnesota, and he's not here. He's everywhere, but he's not here. He's on somebody's wall. He's um on somebody's billboard. You know, he's in the newspaper but he's not here. He's here in spirit, but he's not here. But I do miss him because we had so much things to do.
0: That was George Floyd's aunt, Angela Harrelson.
9: We, the jury in the above entitled matter, as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. We, the jury in the above entitled matter, as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. We, the jury in the above entitled matter, as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, Find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2021.
5: Then we said we did this. I said we didn't do it, but the community
0: did it. After the verdict in the Chauvin trial was announced, we talked to Angela again, along with her twin sister, Mahalia Jones.
5: The world did it. They helped us do this. As a family, we couldn't have did this by ourselves.
0: And we wanted to ask them about how they are thinking about their nephew's legacy.
5: As people, it's been through the injustice. It makes you want to just fight more. It gives you so much encouragement. Say, we got to stand up. We got to do something. We got to keep the fight going. Hmm. It just uplifts you all over. Well, it's so uplifting. and I I hope, mean, The hope is real.
0: Can I ask, um, during the course of the trial, did you ever have the opportunity to be in the courtroom? Yes. What was that like?
5: It was just like I was someplace else. Like, sometimes I often think, I never thought we would be in this place. And when I first came to the courthouse and I saw all the barcades, and I it's like, oh my God, it looked like a prison. Or It's like, it was just weird, you know, because everything was so intense. And it's like, you knew you couldn't make a wrong move or anything. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first day I went in court and I'm putting my shoes on the thing. You take your jacket off like you do at the airport. They scan you. And before I went through the thing to, to do the complete body check, like you walk through, um, something said, look back. And that's when I laid eyes on Mr. Chauvin.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. Do you think he realized that you were one of George Floyd's family members? or? Yes.
5: Yes, he did, because only people that could go through there could get through there were either family
0: mm-hmm.
5: and the news, news reporters. But when I locked eyes on him, I looked next to him, and it was an attorney. So I briefly turned away, because we're not supposed to have contact with him. But, and my husband told, asked me, well, how do you know that was Dr. Chauvin? I said, I know it's him because I remember the eyes. Mm-hmm. I remember the eyes. He said, but he had a mask on. I said, I don't care. I know that was him. And I remember the eyes. And I got this chill, this, this cringe. But then I looked at him And in my mind, I still had the image in my mind. I turned around, and the cringe feeling that I felt, I just let it go. Because I knew, you know what, Angela? Let it go. Hmm. I let it go.
0: Was that your first time seeing Derek Chauvin in person? Yes. It was the
5: first time, you know, that I was that close to him.
0: When you say that you felt like you needed to let it go— what do you mean by that?
5: But the first thing the family said, oh, my God, there's a man that killed Perry.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And that was the first thing. Oh,
0: that man
5: that killed Perry. And you start thinking these things. And if you hold on to that, you end up, you may say something to him, or you may look a certain way, or you, I did not want anything further to prevent me from not being in court that day. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I said, you know what? That's a man that made a very bad decision. Hmm. He's just someone, a human being, that made a bad decision. Huh. So let it go.
0: Um, Just to make sure that I understand. So the way that it worked out during the trial is that there was one Family member representing your family each day in court, correct? Yes. So what was it like kind of being your family's representative there? And why did it feel important for you on the days that you were that representative to be sitting in that chair bearing witness to this trial?
5: To me, it was like I'm being there for Perry. I wanted. Derek Chauvin, I wanted the team to know he has support. You guys raked him over like he was not even a human being. Called him a drug addict, made it sound like the reason why he died, because he was a black man that just OD'd off drugs anyway, you know, so what? And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here because... No matter what you think of Perry, we love him. And you're going to see that he, he, he's going to have somebody here every day that's going to support him. Whether it's his aunties, his brothers, his nieces, we're going to stand there as a family every day to show that we love Perry. You know, you call him a drug addict and, you know, another black man had a prison record. He's a felon. But you know what? He was a human being. He was a human being, and all he wanted to do that day for nine minutes and 29 seconds, he just wanted Mr. Chauvin to help him.
0: If you could say something to the members of the jury in this trial, what would you say?
5: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: What do you think the message is that was sent through their conviction?
5: Through the conviction, this is validation that racism exists. What this did to us was gave us validation for over 400 years. Yes, That what we have been experiencing is not in just in our
0: head. When we'd heard you on the podcast last fall, um, you were describing how hard the months after George had died, Partially because of the fact that he was everywhere, that you were seeing him everywhere, and he was on TV, and everyone was talking about him, and there were signs all over the city and all over the country. But at the same time, he wasn't there because he wasn't alive and he wasn't with you. I wonder if that's a feeling that still is with you now, this feeling of seeing him everywhere, but not having him.
5: Yeah, that was really because I was grieving through I was grieving through a very hard time. It's like sometimes when I have a a moment, sometimes you want a moment to yourself, no matter where you go, he's everywhere. you know, people want to talk about it. You go to work, people are looking at it on you know on their computers. And I didn't know what to do. I had to find my way. I just had to find my way. But today it's a little different. I'm I'm much stronger than I was 11 months ago. You know, I've worked through my grief process. And now when I see Perry, I have a sense of a peace. Proud that we did something, the world did something so special for him in helping him get justice. And so now I look at him as a symbol for Equality that Perry, even though you're not here, and even though your death is the reason for this, this is validation that your death was not in vain. And we can, and I can see your picture, and I can smile and say, Perry, the world is changing because mm-hmm. of you. Mm-hmm. The world is going in a better direction because of you. Perry, you really did change the world for a better place. I said, you may not be here with us, but your spirit is everywhere. Is and, is and he paid the ultimate price for that, wow. all because of the color of his skin and the fact that they didn't see him as a human being. I just wish Mr. Charbon would was as him as a human being. You know, Hey, if people don't see you as a human being, they won't help you. No.
3: It's okay. It's okay.
0: Angela Harrelson and Mahalia Jones are the aunts of George Floyd. This episode was made possible by a huge team of reporters and editors here at The Post. Thank you to Aralise Hernandez, Tracy Jan, Laura Meckler, Tolu Olurunipa, Robert Samuels, Griff Whitty, and Cleve Wootson. The story was produced by Ted Muldoon and Lena Muhammad. Ted Muldoon also contributed reporting and wrote the music throughout. It was edited by me and Maggie Penman, our executive producer. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our staff includes Alexis Diao, Jordan Marie Smith, Ariel Plotnick, Renny Sprenovsky, Sabi Robinson, and Emma Talkoff. This episode is part of a project called George Floyd's America. To read more of the reporting and to see photos and videos from George Floyd's family and community, find a link in our show notes and at PostReports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.